0: Welcome back to Standout Medical Careers, the series of conversations with doctors about medical career motivations, choices, challenges, and fulfillment. I'm Anita Fletcher. In today's episode, we meet Dr. Meryn Cooper, founder and CEO of Touchstone Life Care. Before we hear about Meryn's work, I'd like to remind you that if you want notifications of when I release a new episode or, or if you want to get a free checklist to help you create applications that stand out, go to the Standout Medical Careers website and sign up for my newsletter, StandoutMedicalCareers.com.au. Dr Meryn Cooper is passionate about finding ways to improve both the system and culture for people at the end of their life. Widowed at 23, Meryn knows personally and professionally the intimacy and the trauma of -of end-of-life decision-making and caring. She has worked in palliative care in Outback Indigenous communities, in some of the poorest communities in the world and in the world's most advanced hospitals where 97-year-olds receive CPR, but their families do not visit. Merrin's medical and personal experiences led her to become a health tech innovator and founder of Touchstone Life Care with a mission to improve the end of life experience for patients, families, and care providers with easily retrievable digital advanced care plans. She is a key person of influence within the death and dying sector. Good morning, Marin. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'm really happy to have you on the Standout Medical Careers podcast. How are you?
1: Thank you, Anita. It's always an, it's fun always talking with you and a real honor to be asked to be on this podcast.
0: It's great. So let's get into it. I remember our meeting a few years ago when I was working for the AMA and you were working as a JMO at Hornsby Hospital. How did you go from being a doctor to running Touchstone Life Care?
1: Great question. And it's taken quite a few years, but the beginnings of it happened while I was working as a JMO. And my very last day working as the JMO was one that I keep in my memory and it keeps motivating me in the work I do now. There was one lady, it was 9 o'clock on a Saturday night, she was 96. She'd been in for three weeks with septicemia. She'd been brought in from a residential care facility uh, and she had nonverbal dementia. So... um, her son also had nonverbal dementia. So there was nobody to talk with her about what she wanted. Mm. For three weeks, she was treated with IV vanc, IV potassium. She pulled those cannulas out every shift. We ended up restraining her and putting them back in. She spat out all of her orals for potassium. And when I spoke to the boss at the time, I said, I don't want to keep recannulating this lady. She clearly doesn't want this. The boss said, If we don't give her any more IV potassium, she will develop life-threatening hypokalemia, meaning she would fall asleep and die. But the boss said, we will go to theatre and put in a pick line for her that she won't pull out. And three weeks later it got infected and she died miserable and alone and in pain, still in the hospital. Left alone, that lady would have been able to be in her own residential care facility with familiar faces, familiar sounds around her, and she would have died there, but in in a sense of calm and with adequate pain relief. So instead she had six weeks of trauma. On the same day, I had six other patients similar, Mm -hmm. septicemia, and one little lady had many spinal fractures from osteoporosis. She had gone from neurosurgeon to neurosurgeon. She was about to be moved to yet another hospital for yet another operation. And when I sat with her, she said, I don't want to go. Can they please just leave me alone? But she had not had the courage to say that to a doctor. And of course, she didn't have the courage. She was 47 kilos in a gown that didn't do up at the back on morphine, there was nothing sort of assertive about her to be able to speak her truth to a doctor in a hurry with a you know, stethoscope around. So that's when I realised we need to encourage people to do their advanced care planning before they get into hospital. It's not something that is a DNR slash non-DNR that's done rapidly preoperatively. It's something that needs time and empowerment. So what happened was... Um, because I was an older JMO, I was able to have discussions with some of the bosses who would sort of chat to me in a different way. And some of them, one respiratory physician said to me, "Marin, our hospitals are bed blocked with people with dementia and pneumonia and I can fix them all and send them back. But is that actually the right thing? And this was after we'd had to restrain a little lady with dementia and pneumonia to put down a third nasogastric tube that she'd pulled out. And it was just putting the staff into misery and stress, as well as the families and doctors. So Um, I started to research advanced care plans. I realised pieces of paper are useless. They get coffee spilt on them, left behind in the ambulance. All of us doctors have looked at an advanced care plan that didn't make sense or tried to thumb through 26 pages while giving CPR. Mm -hmm. Useless. So I found a software developer and from a background that I had in decision aids, Uh, we made a web app so that people can ask all the questions, answer some questions, and then derive a PDF from their answers that is held on the cloud. And that means it's available on people's phones, in the GP clinic, in the ambulance, in the residential care, and inside hospitals. So that was the big picture over three years ago now. And the word for something that is available In many places in the health system at once is interoperable. Interoperable means you can pull up your advanced care plan half finished and finish it at the GP or you can check it with your lawyer. You can send it to your neighbour and then we've added in a QR code so it's scannable in an emergency. That word interoperable is now a bit of a buzzword in health and digital health And it's about empowering patients along the journey in this fragmented health system. So that meant I had to learn tech, I had to learn business, I had to learn getting investors, uh, impact investing, and importantly, um, law, legal stuff, because advanced care planning is sort of got this, it's one of the biggest barriers to advanced care planning is people's fear of medico-legal. Uh, responsibilities. And it's a classic story of fear driving people's inaction. And when we are introducing change, fear is the big thing you come up against. So doctors, lawyers, everybody, even uh, support workers in home care situations, understandably, their very first fear is, what happens to me if I help somebody do their advanced care plan and it's not right? you know, their own medico-legal responsibilities. But the truth is, when a person does an advanced care plan as a common law advanced care directive, the person helping them is under no legal threat unless they are trying to lead them in any way. And if you can verify that you've not led them in any way, you're fine. And so we have built all of that into a whole advanced care planning solution that includes sharing the person's plan in advance with their neighbours, their family members, so everybody knows about it and can check on it. So a big driver also is prevention of elder abuse. So advanced care plans work both ways. It They don't only prevent over that you may not want at the end of life. But they also prevent somebody coming in and their their son or daughter who might have inheritance in patients saying to the ED doctor, mum doesn't want anything, she's good to go, don't worry about her. And doctors have got good antenna for this. When there are red flags, that's when we go, I think I'm just going to ring around and check and discuss with my colleagues. So we've actually built in this sharing mechanism under the guidance of Professor of Data, Information and Privacy, which allows a person's advanced care plan to be shared ahead of time, discussed, and all of those people know it, and they know what it is live. So that if you change your advanced care plan on our site, it's like a Facebook page. That's what everybody sees. They don't see what was there yesterday. They see what's there now, live. So it's an advanced care plan that is held on a URL, not on a piece of paper.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Maren. And, you know, what you were talking about in terms of fear, and I think fear and lack of information is what sort of stops people from, progressing and looking further into great solutions like this um, and finding out more information because, you know, they're afraid, as you say, of what's going to happen. So this is why I've got you here today. And uh, and I was really pleased to be on one of your webinars last week, um, which was talking about the important role that a digital system um, has within this planning process, and you've already referred to that Uh, this morning Um, and the phrase nothing left unsaid really resonated strongly with me Mm. and I think even when people think they've had enough of a conversation this provides a structure to ensure that it's a full conversation you know I've seen advanced care plans too and it was pretty much a DNR uh, do not resuscitate choice and, and that was it and i In watching your webinar, it really brought in um, all of the other factors that make someone's quality of life better um, at the end of their life. So, even what type of music they would like to listen to or what other activities they would really enjoy doing. Uh, And I can see that your system allows for that capacity to do that. So, could you please explain to the doctors and the non doctors in the audience? what advanced care planning is to sort of take it right back for someone who doesn't, hasn't heard about this before.
1: Sure. Uh, look, most people haven't really heard about it properly. Traditionally, um, an advanced care plan was was called a living will, uh, and that made sense to quite a few people. And then it was called an advanced care directive. But now the term advanced care plan is often used. And I was taught, in fact, there's a JMO from Hornsby Hospital where we did have some good information, that an advanced care plan includes the directive plus other things. So the directive can be the more sort of legal questions, the DNR, the yes-no questions to um, ventilators, dialysis, end-of-life treatments. But the plan can include values and preferences for care, the music that you do or don't like, who you do or don't want to be around you, you do or don't want your pet, what are the things, what are the tastes and the smells that are important for you and also an advanced care plan can include the names of substitute decision makers and we can get really carried away with the law but in Australia there are two types of law. There is statutory law and case law or common law. Doctors work under common law. We must remember that because it's federal. It means things are judged case by case. So a statutory directive is a form. Each state has one except New South Wales at the moment and Tasmania at the moment. So each state has one and if that's filled in and the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, you as a doctor are supposed to follow that. But They're rarely available. They're on pieces of paper. Even if they are shared as a PDF, they can still be illegible, not make sense, don't get to where you need them. A common law advance care directive is accepted in every state. It can be a text. It can be written on a scrap of paper. But if it is a poor quality common law advance care directive like that and is therefore subject to conflict or challenge. It's going to go to a court of law and people will have to say, is that piece of paper good enough? So we've built a common law advance care directive that has belt and braces. Really good and the sharing ahead of time grants it legal validity. So if it's shared with six different people, discussed with six different people, all of those six different people can attest to the person's capacity and can attest to the fact that the person wasn't coerced. Mm-hmm. So if it ever is challenged, and it's less likely to be because you've got buy-in from all these people, if it ever is challenged, there's evidence in six people from six people that the person was not coerced and they did have capacity to make these decisions. And that brings us to another question that um, impacts doctors to a large degree, and that's around capacity. So, Capacity is not a blanket term, as we know. Your capacity to make decisions about your mortgage is different to your capacity to make decisions about whether you want to taste for pleasure when you've got end-stage pneumonia. Do you want nil by mouth and a nasogastric tube, or do you actually want to try some nice tastes just for pleasure and risk that you might get a pneumonia from that? So, Capacity is attributable to the, the issue that you are making decisions about. Essentially, the person needs to be able to say back to the doctor that they understand the consequences of their choices. And so if somebody has already lost capacity and they are pushing away food or they are pushing away or pulling out cannulas, they can't really explain to the doctor, the consequences of their choices, even though their actions may indicate they don't want you to do what you're doing. Any doctor could possibly argue that that person was unable to explain to me the consequences of their choices. Therefore, I deemed they didn't have capacity. Therefore, I kept doing these brutal treatments to them according to the the guidelines or something. So um, it's really important to tell patients to do their advanced care planning ahead of time. GPs have got one minute. They just don't have time to do a proper advanced care plan. But what we've designed is something the patient can start at home, take to the GP, ask just the questions that they need the GP's advice on, and then finish it off at home. So we've tried to come up against obstacles, whether it be obstacles around timing, around the law, around how do you share, how do you marry the need for confidentiality with the need for sharing? How do you you bridge the need for ease of use by a 90-year-old but also a comprehensive advanced care directive? How do you meet the needs for somebody to talk about all their values and preferences and they can take a long time but that's not what you need in an emergency. In an emergency, you need at the top of the page, yes or no to DNR, yes or no to ventilation. So we've actually been able to design a system that meets all of those supposedly contradictory needs. Yeah.
0: Well, as I say, I've seen a snapshot and it looks excellent. I'll be filling mine out. Um, and, and when is the right time actually to make an advance care plan? And is this type of planning only for unwell or elderly people to think about
1: yeah no it's um it's for all of us to think about it advanced care plan is having the most important conversations with the people you love the most and it's never too early to do that so you can start by saying i want to chat to you about something that's important to me um if anything was ever to happen to me and I couldn't speak for myself I want you to know the medical care I want and I want you to know the life outcomes that are acceptable to me and it and it gives you an opportunity to say to somebody if anything happens and 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 I am facing dying I want your eyes to be the ones I'm looking into I want you to be there holding my hand there isn't anybody else I want around me. Or you say that to your children, you kids are precious to me and I would love you to be there with me. I don't want to be separated from you. I would rather have some, be conscious for a while and I would rather have you in a room around me together than linger on and on on in an ICU. Or you might say, I am a fighter. I will want to live on as a quadriplegic, if I can't move, if all I can do is twinkle my nose, I want to be alive and kept alive. Now, that doesn't mean a patient will get all the treatment they want, but they are giving consent or refusing consent. So an advanced care plan is an anticipatory document done in advance, and it's essentially giving and refusing consent to medical treatment, but... It's a, it's a decision aid also for the doctors and the families who are going to have to make decisions about that person. So you want to give them as much information as you can in conversation and in an actual document. And for our elderly folk, if you do have somebody who is becoming losing some cognition and, you know, getting dementia, it is hard because denial is up there with fear. And so you have to try and approach these conversations with your loved ones or even with your patients in a really gentle, tender way. Um, Dr. Catherine Mannix has written a beautiful book called Listen. We've got a film on our website called Dying, Start the Conversation, and it talks about silence, sitting in silence, And being comfortable with that and not having to hasten a conversation. So saying and being vulnerable and authentic. So saying to a patient or your loved one, mum, look, I'm concerned about some things and I would really like your opinion about these. If anything was to happen to you medically and you couldn't speak for yourself, I would like to know what medical care you want. Can you tell me the sort of medical care you would want me to tell your doctors about that you want? Start with the conversation. And then it goes, well, do you know what? If I, if I do have to speak with your doctors, I'm going to have to give them something that, that proves we've had this conversation. And, and I think that's called an advanced care plan. And I think that it would be really helpful to me if we could fill that out together. So if anything happens, and let's hope it never does, but if anything happens, I know what you want and I can almost prove it to the doctors so that you get the treatment you want faster. Because when doctors have to fish around for an advanced care plan, ring around the family members, that is precious hours that are lost. Very often when it's an elderly person or an end-stage cancer, What they need is pain relief. What they need is adequate pain relief. And they miss out on that because a doctor is worried that if they're not giving them all the interventions, there'll be problems. Or they are out there trying to find an advance care plan and trying to ring around a family to find out. Who knows? I've been that JMO. 85-year-old ladies coming in from residential care, you ring the daughter and say your mum with nonverbal dementia and now pneumonia has been brought into emergency. Um, You know, when when was the last time you visited your mum? Oh, it's been a couple of years now. Um, Have you had a chat with her about her wishes for end-of-life care or if she was to get a life-threatening illness, what she would want us to do? And people on the end of the phone will say, oh, no, my brother, my brother, he knows all that. He's in London. <laughs> so the doctors waste time and that delayed treatment delays the the pain relief or the interventions that the person will get.
0: Well, thanks, Marin. You know, to me it sounds like, Really, one of the best gifts you could give to somebody, to a loved one, to have that conversation and to make sure that those wishes are going to be relayed, um, depending, regardless of whatever the circumstances are. Um, and really, it's about comfort, it's about sense of control, um, you know, and for not just the, the the patient, the dying person, but their entire family and. Uh, and you know, not to mention the the, the around around conflict um, that this sort of prior planning um, provides. Um, so you know, and you mentioned about the pressure of doctors. I mean, we all know that they're under enough pressure on the, in the day to day managing their you know their workloads within hospitals and other settings. Um, and there's, so they're working obviously within this, this system that is stretched in most yes. cases.
1: And, and, and COVID this all so much harm. Right, exactly. And, you know, that comes... Because people don't have somebody accompanying them exactly, when they
0: come in. Exactly. Well, you know, we've just seen, that's it. I have my father living in aged care and we weren't able to visit for three months. Um, And we were fortunate actually in being able to um, spend time with him in his last weeks, but I was very mindful of the fact that a lot of people, um, that was up to their aged care provider to make that decision and a lot of people didn't get the benefit of that. So it it really underlined to me even more the importance of of this type of planning and, and system.
1: And so, you know, yeah, I had, a, I had a chat from a, a fellow two weeks ago who said his mum was in a residential care, had been there, nonverbal dementia for many years and was squirming, you know, a, a scrunched up face and clearly had pain and he was unable to get through to the residential care providers to give her adequate morphine. She was on small doses of morphine once a day. And so he really had to – we practised, actually. We practised the words for him to use to say, I've chatted to my mum about this. I know what she wants. This is not adequate morphine. And he he had to really make the case for his mum. So advanced care planning is about empowering the people who are going to be talking on your behalf. Mm. almost can practise ahead of time what you're going to say to the doctors in a panicked Sometimes difficult situation,
0: right? And you know, through COVID as well, of course, and we saw a lot of in aged care, um, residential aged care places, the lack of consistency, even with staff. So the you know the the regular carers weren't there anymore, and you know, so all just. Well,
1: there are some changes coming through as a result of the Royal Commission aged care, the aged care Royal Commission. So they had a report that recommended residential care facilities be required to have an up-to-date advanced care directive at call when they ring a paramedic and that has been adopted by the federal government and will be brought into law. It was due to be legislated by December 2021. It hasn't, and of course now there's an election that will make things slower. But it is happening that residential care will have to have an advanced care directive that is up-to-date, not three years old, not fishing through an in-tray of 50 pieces of paper that can be given to the paramedics, and that's how our system works. So it's a QR code that can be scanned on the AMBO's phone, and then the AMBO can take it straight into ED, it can be re-scanned there. So that's called aged care transfer. Mm-hmm. They are really trying to get advanced care records for aged care transfer and similarly for home care. So the aged care quality standards now say all government supported aged care providers have to have organisation wide advanced care planning. And to date, they've just tick the box and sent their patients to a website and hope that they can figure out how to download it and fill in all the blank pages. Mm-hmm. That has, but now let's hope the quality standards and the laws do get some get enforced and GPs can be saying to their residential care, where is your advanced care plan? I've done one. I need it digitally. I need it available in my office. So this system that we have. GPs can go online and talk to us about how they can get it or you know advocate that their residential care providers have it so they can see in a person's advanced care plan from their office in their phone on their in their car and in the residential care IT as well that's what we're it's system change that we are working towards
0: yeah and uh, and it also can be linked into the my health record
1: yep absolutely and residential care are all supposed to be coming on board with it digital technology and linking into my health record and now in this in the web app that we've designed you upload it to my health record absolutely
0: okay great and Merrin, you know money's often a th- another sort of hurdling um hurdle that people have to get over in order to implement changes within systems so you know, there are obviously enormous implications with this kind of work and, and all changes across IT systems within hospitals and and possibly redirection of health system resources is needed. Could you please outline what some of those resources are and, and some of your ideas about how the money that's being spent on overtreatment uh, could be planned, factored in, um, in sure. order to bring about this this kind of change?
1: Well, there's three types of resources that are being poorly used now and can be optimised. One is financial, one is human resources, and that includes time, and one is energy and plastics because we all know those disposables, there's carloads of disposables per patient. And if you've got somebody in hospital for three months who doesn't really want to be there, that's a lot of time, money, and energy and plastic that they don't want to be using up. So in terms of finances, we know that we spend around 20% of our healthcare budget on the final 12 months of patients' lives. used to be 25%, it's around 20, sometimes down to 13%. Either way, in Australia, that's $40 billion a year on the final 12 months of patients' lives much of which we know is unwanted, unnecessary and futile. KPMG in 2020 estimated at least $253 million per year is wasted on just on the final few weeks and months of patients with documentable futile treatment. In addition, you've got Time. Now, there's been a lot of research on operational efficiencies by advanced care planning. It decreases conflict within a workforce, so within ICU, what are we going to do with this patient? It decreases conflict within the workforce, but also between the workforce and family, and advanced care plans decrease the family conflict. That means you come to a collective decision faster. Treatment is given faster with better patient outcomes. So every doctor will tell you the stories. My story, uh, on one of those last days in ICU, there was a lady from Italian family in ICU intubated with pneumonia, and her family sat in the ICU waiting room for five days before they could come to a communal decision about what to do. They argued in that ICU for five days until eventually the lady passed away while ventilated anyhow, Mm. without being able to say goodbye. There was a case only two months ago of a boy, young boy, um, well, young gentleman with a partner, and he had made his new partner his Enduring power of Attorney, but his family had an advanced care plan and the two people didn't talk. So the family knew his wishes not to be kept alive for a long period of time at his end-stage cancer. His new partner, however said, I don't want him to die yet, and they ended up in court while the boy was in ICU. Just horror stories like that mean that you've got, you're leaving a legacy of conflict that can last generations, whereas you can have a legacy of mum or dad sat us down, she told us what she wanted. It was really hard and really sad, but when we had to make the decision not to do aggressive treatment, but instead palliative treatment. We sat with her for three weeks. As hard as it was, we could support each other because we knew we were doing what she wanted. And we had a chance to say goodbye, nothing left unsaid. Right, and
0: uh, you know it's really heartening to hear about those changes in 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 aged care. And do you think that there'll be hopefully there'll be a knock on onto the health system more broadly?
1: Um, Yeah, there are in EHR they're bringing in smart fire apps now. So there are lots of um, apps around which you can't really get onto within hospitals, but as there are things called smart fire apps which can connect with. CERNA and Epic and each system, some of the EHR. Then doctors within the hospital should be able to access some of these apps from within EHR, as well as you know my health record. So there there are changes coming, but I like to think it is system change, and therefore it is very slow and therefore all the advocates we need are important because everybody complaining or saying, look, there are new innovations out there, can't we have a try, can't we do a pilot test of them, is what's needed to create enough energy to make system change. So if any health system is only as good as its weakest link. You can have the best conversation in the world, you can have the best emergency care and the best palliative care in the world, but if the patient's wishes get dropped off and not, there in the middle of it all or don't get conveyed, it doesn't matter how good the other treatments are, you don't know that it's matching what that patient actually wants.
0: Mm. Right. Well, thank you very much for all of your insights in this really important topic, Marin. And Look, I'm always curious about the plans on people's horizons. So what's your sort of three-year plan for your organisation, Touchstone Life Care? Uh,
1: it's, It's a really dynamic plan. So there are lots of changes coming in health. Some I'm not happy about. I don't believe digital health transformation is health transformation. I think perfect health starts with a person. It's about awareness. It's about... Um, sleep, meditation, rest, adequate nutrition, adequate digestion, connection with other people and purpose. None of that is really done with an app. So Touchstone Life Care is about emboldening individuals to desire good health and a good life and a good dying and know that they've got the choices and the options to make a decision, act on that decision and drive their own health care, whether that be advanced care planning or whether it be this is my asthma plan, this is what I do in an emergency, this is what I need in an emergency when I can't speak for myself, whether it be a mental health plan. They all need to be interoperable so that the person owns it, they drive it, they started at home and it is their wishes, their plan that gets discussed, their goals of treatment that drive every piece of healthcare that is then given to them. So that's the sort of future that we are mapping out.
0: Excellent. Well, I can't wait to see what the next phases, these next phases bring, Marin. And uh, and look, thanks again for sharing your um, experiences from this fascinating work. And. Um, how would people um, find more
1: out more about you or potentially get in touch? Uh, look, I'm on LinkedIn. Maren Cooper is on LinkedIn. Touchstone Life Care, three separate words, is on LinkedIn. That's always a good way to find us. Head straight to the website, www.touchstonelifecare.com. That's four words, touch, stone, life, care. And the word touchstone means your individual base, what's authentic for you. So LinkedIn, um, we've got, we're have got we on Facebook, social media, LinkedIn website, and you can always email me, Marin at touchstonelifecare.com.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Marin. And I'll uh, give a plug as well. I've registered this morning for your next webinar next week on the 22nd of March, I believe. Um, and, uh, and also that'll be timed with Advanced Care Planning
1: Week. That is, and we have the amazing Julie Macrossan hosting that webinar. Uh, Julie has her own health journey. She's a survivor from oropharyngeal cancer. So she's faced these issues directly herself. Um, and she's an innovator as well. So I'm really excited to be speaking with Julie. It's 2 o'clock on Tuesday, the 22nd of March.
0: Excellent. And I know from attending your last webinar that uh, a recording sent afterwards and I actually forwarded that on to one friend uh, so people can revisit that if they're not available at that time, if they That's register, right? That's right. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks very much, Marin. Look forward. Thank you, Anita. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Standout Medical Careers. If you like the episode or think it will be useful to someone else, please leave a review at podchaser.com. And if you've got any questions, let me know on LinkedIn at Standout Medical Careers. And remember, the better you articulate your story, the more you will stand out.